If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When we talk about the Crusades today, The images that spring to mind are as clear as they are striking. A brutal clash of civilizations, a bloody attack on the holy city of Jerusalem, a valiant crusader knight emblazoned with a cross, proudly sitting astride his horse, a penniless pilgrim slowly making their laborious trek towards salvation. For many years, these medieval military campaigns have been shrouded in myth and legend. But, as we're going to find out, The real story is much more complex and far more interesting. I'm Emily Briffitts, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be travelling back in time to walk in the footsteps of the Crusaders as we trace the story of the First Crusade, taking in their triumphs and failures, witnessing the hardships they faced and seeing the landscapes they traversed through their eyes. We'll also be taking in the perspective of those who lived in the Holy Land and the regions the armed pilgrims passed through, speaking to a range of top historical experts to challenge some of the most popular perceptions about the Crusades. And to top this all off, we'll be delving into the Chronicles and revealing just why we continue to talk about the Crusades to this day. In this first episode, we're uncovering the origins of the First Crusade, tracing how a complex web of ideas and problems came together to form a major movement, fired with religious zeal. And we're going to tackle one key question. Why did tens of thousands of people leave their homes and livelihoods behind to travel thousands of miles to wage a war against people they'd never met? To take us right back to the start of this story, first, let's hear from Jonathan Phillips, Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London, as we step back into the late 11th century to witness the moment a fire was first lit under the idea of a crusade. On the 27th of November, 1095, Pope Urban II launched the First Crusade at Clermont in central France, a momentous event with profound and lasting consequences peoples of Western Europe and the Near East, Christian and Muslim alike. Urban 
probably without realising it, created a flexible, malleable form of holy war that drew people to it and would, over time, spread to Muslim Iberia, pagan Baltic, Christian Greeks in Constantinople, Catholic enemies of the Christian church, Albigensian heretics, Mongols, and long after Christians had lost the Holy Land in 1291, would be deployed against heretics, schismatics, and of course the Ottoman Turks too. It's a legacy that's still with us today. All that was to come. What prompted Urban to come up with this idea? Why 1095? Why was it so attractive to people? To whom was it attractive? If you're in Western Europe in the late 11th century, the things that you'd notice about it were its violence and the intense religiosity. It's a time of limited central authority. King of France has only got authority maybe 30 or 40 kilometres outside of Paris. And even within that, his nobles can effectively tell him to get lost and challenge his authority. So we think of perhaps kings of France as terribly powerful, all-encompassing figures. Absolutely not the case in the late 11th century. Religiosity, sometimes hard to understand in our more secular world today, but religion saturated the late 11th, 12th century. Churches, contrast to today, are brightly painted. Images of Christ, the saints, and of hell, the consequences of sin, are everywhere. These hallmarks of society, the violence and the religiosity, are a concern for the Pope as the shepherd of his flock. He needs to look after the spiritual well-being of his people, but he also needs to try to control the violence. And there was another thing that Urban was particularly concerned with. This is a time of growing papal authority. The church had been undergoing a period of reform in the 11th century. A lot of lay people had become too involved in the church, controlling it, influencing it, or, as the churchmen would see, polluting it. And the group of reformers decide that this has to change. 1046, there were three popes at the same time. That's not good for the brand. That's not good for the image of the church. And so they decide to purify it, to take back control of their great institution. This leads to tension, leads to conflict. The most powerful secular figure is the Holy Roman Emperor. And you have a tension, a rubbing of borders, if you like, between these two great institutions, the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. And Urban sees the crusade as a way of asserting his authority. By calling the people of Western Europe, he is showing his spiritual leadership. By coming up with this idea of the crusade, he has a chance to establish himself as the major figure in the West. Something else that Urban was aware of was that the boundaries of Christian Europe were shifting. He was aware that the Muslims of Iberia had been pushed back, 1085, the conquest of Toledo. In southern Italy, the Greeks had been pushed out, and Sicily, the Muslim rulers of Sicily, had been removed by the Normans in 1090. So he's in a society where there is a current where Christians are getting more confident, Western Europeans are getting more confident, dynamic, extending the areas under their control. Another important group of Christians that Urban has to be aware of are the Greek Orthodox, the descendants of Rome, the Byzantine Empire based in Constantinople. In 1054, a schism had broken out between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church over liturgical and doctrinal differences. But Urban looked to try to bring that together, to try to reconcile those differences. One way of reconciling those differences is to offer some help to the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantines had been on the receiving end of an enormous invasion of the Seljuk Turks in the late 11th century. At the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, 
the Emperor Romanus had been defeated. This had enabled the Seljuks to sweep across most of Asia Minor, most of modern Turkey, getting up to very close to the walls of Constantinople. With this, the latest Byzantine Emperor, Alexius I Komnenos, made an appeal for help. Historians used to think that this was in part one of the triggers for the First Crusade, but 24 years is a bit of a slow reaction time. I think more we think these days that efforts, invasions by the Pechnegs, steppe tribesmen attacking over the Danube, prompted Alexios to turn to Urban and say, please can you come and send me some armed knights? Alexios wants crack mounted troops to help fight his wars for him. Two or three hundred Flemish knights go down and fight on behalf of Alexios and then go home. In March 1095, Alexios sends another delegation up to the Council of Piacenza. And there again, he's really asking for the same thing, some elite mounted warriors to help him. Urban reads this differently. He uses this opportunity, this appeal from Alexios, to pull on all the ideas that he's been thinking about, about religion, about piety, about controlling violence, about leadership, about his duty to provide salvation for his flock. And he pulls them together in the idea of the crusade. He uses the idea of a pilgrimage, something that Westerners are very familiar with. They're all going on pilgrimage, and I exaggerate not. We think of pilgrimages as things to Canterbury, perhaps, Santiago, to Rome. But in medieval times, pilgrimages are local. You go to your local church, you ask for salvation, you ask for help with crops and fertility. Pilgrimages is an everyday part of life. But of course, the ultimate pilgrimage is to Jerusalem, Christ's city, somewhere so important to everybody across the Christian West. Urban pulls this idea together of helping the Greeks, of channeling violence, of achieving salvation for his flock. A decree we have from the Council of Clermont says this, whoever for devotion alone, not to gain honor or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the church of God can substitute this journey for all penance. In other words, the consequences of confessed sin can be removed. This is a new way of attaining salvation. So what is Urban actually asking there? He's trying to persuade people to march thousands of miles, largely into the unknown, to leave their homes, their families and their loved ones. So how exactly was Urban asking this? If you're trying to persuade people to do something as radical and dramatic as that, you've got to make a pretty convincing argument. There's going to need to be some propaganda. You're going to be doing this for some strong, strong reasons. Yes, a journey to Jerusalem, but who are you taking it from? You're taking it from the Muslims, and they have to be demonised. There's an enormous sense of the Muslims as terrible people. They're doing terrible things to Christian pilgrims. A lot of this is just exaggerated hype. It's designed to make people act. You're not going to leave your home, your family and your loved ones for people who are amiable and friendly. It has to be something that is, is exaggerated. Warfare in any century, you demonise your opponents, you propagandise things. Down the centuries, you can see it time and time again. You've also got to offer people a reward. In this religious society, the consequences of sin are something that the violent knights are going to be worried about. And this, Urban has cleverly locked together what they're good at, which is fighting, for a cause that he deems worthwhile, i.e. recovering Jerusalem. And as a result, they will avoid the consequences of their sin, the eternal fires of hell. So how did Urban get this message across? He goes on a short preaching tour after Clermont, and he sends out letter after letter after letter. And this idea spreads like wildfire. 
He thought he was asking the Knights of Western Europe to respond, but this idea of remission of sins is extraordinarily attractive. People really, really want this. And so you get pilgrims, you get laymen, people from almost every level of society, including churchmen, including young people, the old, the poor. Everybody wants to take part in this expedition. But was it just religion that drove people to take the cross? Well, of course, that's significant. But if you're a noble, then you're in an equestrian society. Chivalry is just about to hit its stride. The idea of honour, serving the ultimate Lord, God, is something that's going to draw you to the cause. But also, you want status. You're always looking over your shoulder as to what your rivals and competitors are up to. This is a chance to really carve your name into the stories, into the songs that are sung of great expeditions. So the idea of honour is going to attract people. The idea of land may have pulled some people towards the crusade, although in many cases people mortgaged land. If you mortgage land, you want to get it back. People want money. Well, a crusade is going to be a hugely expensive undertaking with enormous overheads. You're going to need enormous amounts of income as you keep going when you're on the crusade. Profit, of course, is sin, and Urban is going to be worried about that. The consequences of sin could mean God's displeasure, disapproval. There's also the simple point, what you might say is patronage. If I am a lord and I say I'm going on crusade, my squire, my blacksmith, my cook have got no choice in the matter whatsoever. They might want to come, but I'm the boss. They're with me whether they like it or not. Having said that people from all walks of life in Western Europe took part in the crusade, there's just one group that are missing, and that's kings. There's some reasons for that, largely down to the character and the personality of those involved. Perhaps also the fact that this was the first crusade. They're worried. Nobody knows what they're letting themselves in for. But in the case of the King of France, he's having an affair with the Countess of Anjou, so that counts him out. William Rufus in England is a man with poor relations with the church, so he's not really suitable. And the Emperor of Germany is in conflict with the Pope in the investiture controversy. So for those rather personal reasons, the three arguably leading figures in Western Europe are, should we say, not eligible or appropriate to go on crusade. But there's the next strata down. The leaders, the nobles of Western Europe are the men who are the main participants in the crusade. You do have the brother of the King of France, Hugh of Vermandois. You have Godfrey of Bouillon, the Duke of Lower Lorraine in German imperial lands. He's a distant descendant of Charlemagne. You've got his brother, Baldwin of Boulogne, later Baldwin I, King of Jerusalem. Robert II of Flanders, whose father had been one of the warriors who responded to Alexios's earlier pleas for help. You've got Robert of Normandy, son of William the Conqueror, who emerges as a great warrior in the course of the crusade. You have Raymond of Saint-Gilles, a man in his 60s from Toulouse, a man speaking not French but Occitan, drawing people from the Languedoc, from Provence. And you also have Bohemond, Bohemond of Taranto, the southern Italian Normans are a really intriguing lot. They have invaded Byzantium in the 1080s. They are aggressive. They are acquisitive. Beaumont himself has no major landholding title. The only thing that he's got in his favour is that he's a great warrior. Fired with enthusiasm and determination to recover Jerusalem, the first crusaders began to organise themselves and get ready to begin their great enterprise. Now we've heard about how Pope Urban's landmark preaching campaign lit a fire underneath the idea of crusading, triggering a military machine 
that slowly ground its wheels into action. But hold on, before we delve any deeper into this story, we need to address a key question that's going to underlie this entire series. What exactly is a crusade? Well, according to Natasha Hodgson, Associate Professor of Medieval History at Nottingham Trent University, figuring out the answer to that is easier said than done. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The big kind of schools of thought in crusading historiography are, you know, should we just view crusades to the Holy Land as crusades? Do they need to have a pilgrim destination in order to be a true crusade? Or do we count all of the people who were travelling there, not part of the big expeditions, as being crusades at the same time? Or what about the ones that go to, say, for example, the Baltic or southern France? Do we include those as crusades or not. It's still a very difficult thing, actually, to define, which might seem surprising because most people, I think, when you say the word crusade, have an immediate image in their minds of the knight crusader wearing a cross, setting off on horseback to Jerusalem. And that, in their minds, is is a crusade. But in fact, as with any historical (laughs) field, it's a little bit more complicated. Okay, this is a really complex debate. So let's strip it right back. How did medieval people understand the Crusades? If they were travelling to the holy site of Jerusalem, what made them any different from pilgrims? Over to Danielle Park, teaching fellow at the University of Leicester. So the most important thing to bear in mind with the term crusade is it's not at all what the crusaders called themselves. It's a term that we've inherited for convenient shorthand from roughly the 1700s. So in terms of its etymology, it comes from the Latin and the French, croissade, crucignatus, the idea of being signed with the cross, and that that's really what's distinguishing them from standard non-armed pilgrims. It fits, though, with what the primary sources tell us about these people as being distinguished in their own day from pilgrims. They talk about going on a penitential pilgrimage journey, but they also talk about being signed with the cross and that being a distinct part of the ceremony. And we have primary sources such as Gibra of Nojon who tell us that these people saw this as a distinct new venture, a new way to attain salvation. As the first of many in a series of major military expeditions intended to capture the holy site of Jerusalem, the First Crusade, with its memorable moniker, has gone down in history as the starting point of the Crusades. However, as Danielle explained to me, the so-called First Crusade was preceded by a longer history of proto-Crusades, or almost Crusades. Going back into the 1060s, there is suddenly quite an upshift in the number of people who are interested in going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And rather than those being smaller, more individualised pilgrimage, we start to see a lot more people going together. So in 1064, for example, we see 
around 3,000 people go together on what's been termed the Great German Pilgrimage. We see under the great reformist Pope Gregory VII, this idea of a militia or the Knights of St. Peter being promulgated. It doesn't really gain much traction, but he's clearly tapping into similar ideas that Urban II will use at the Council of Clermont within the next two decades in 1095. So this idea that knights should be operating for the poor, the defenceless, in the interests of the church, has been circulating since the peace and truce of God movements in the 10th century. Just a quick side note here. The peace and truce of God movement was posed by the church in the late 10th through to early 11th century. Its aim was to limit violence in the western half of the collapsed Carolingian Empire, using spiritual sanctions. Anyway, back to Danielle. We can also see to a certain extent that idea of meritorious violence is really on the rise. So just to give one indication, 1066 often gets picked up as a point when popes are really becoming much more interested in what's going on with warfare because William the Conqueror has papal backing for his claim. He has a papal banner indicating that the Pope is on his side. But in the years following 1066 and the process of conquest, there are a series of quite heavy penitentials handed out on those who've taken part in 1066. So if you know how many people you've killed, you've got a set amount of penances to perform. If you're not sure, you might need to do a week's penance for the rest of your life. And that's what's distinct in 1074 and especially 1095 in that that's gone away. The act of warfare itself has become penitential and meritorious in its own right. These were ideas that could be put to good use in solving one of the many problems within Urban's flock. Another idea that's been put forward is that Urban is looking at just the endemic state of violence at this time and thinking, how can I make Western Christendom better? Ah, export all the violence out of the West into the East and that way the problem solved at home. If that was his plan, it didn't really work because a vast number of knights go, but probably a tenth of how many there actually are left at home. So if that was his aim, it wasn't hugely successful. There's a very complicated web of interlocking and overlapping reasons that caused the crusade to be called when it was. One of these was the divide between the Eastern Orthodox Church of the Byzantines and the Western Church under the papacy. The Byzantine Empire, also known as Byzantium, was the remaining portion of the old Roman Empire, which had stretched all the way from Britain to Syria until the western half had been overrun in the 5th century. By the 11th century, the Byzantine Empire was now largely confined to the Balkans, in an area we'll call Asia Minor. Ruled by an emperor, their capital city was Constantinople, now Istanbul, and their language was Greek. Some historians have argued that after the Eastern and Western churches had fallen out in 1054 over doctrinal questions and over who was in charge, the crusade offered an opportunity to make up. But Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway University of London, has other ideas. In theory, from 1054, a state of schism existed between the Orthodox and the Catholic churches. It meant they're not talking to each other, basically. But the fact was, I don't think we should overstress the importance of that, because this has happened many times before in the past, 
exactly the same thing and there's lots of harsh words and clergymen denouncing each other but at the end of the day they kissed and made up and it was fine. So presumably that's what people at the time thought would happen this time. Eventually we'll come to some kind of agreement. So there's nothing irrevocable about it at all and actually I think a lot of people in the late 11th century probably would not have been aware that there was a schism between the churches at all or that the Byzantine Patriarch was not talking to the Pope. I think that the higher clergy are aware of it, but I think your ordinary people probably aren't. So at this stage, before the First Crusade, there is a kind of break between the two, but it's not a serious matter yet. Because if there was a problem, why on earth is the Emperor Alexius asking the Pope for help? And it's true, when he contacts the Pope first, the issue he raises before anything else is the schism. He says, oh dear, we seem to have a bit of a problem, don't we? And the Pope says, yes, we do, don't we? We really need to do something about this. And the Pope is very keen to clear up this schism because he has a dispute with the Western Emperor, the Emperor of Germany, and he really would like the Byzantine Emperor's support. So really, it's no barrier whatsoever to the First Crusade. At this time, however, the Byzantines were facing other troubles. During the 11th century, the Byzantine Empire had expanded to the east. It incorporated quite a lot of Armenian areas. While meanwhile, the Seljuk Empire of Central Asia is expanding towards the west, which means they kind of met on the borders of Armenia. Now, that meant that some people on the Seljuk side were very tempted to cross the border and raid into Byzantine territory, which they do increasingly from about 1045 onwards. It caused quite a lot of damage. And it's these raids that the Byzantine emperors are very eager to stop. So it's in August of 1071 that the Byzantine emperor, a man called Romanus, Romanus IV, decides he's going to put an end to these raids once and for all. So he gathers a large army and he marches east to the Byzantine eastern frontier over near Lake Van, and he encounters an army led by the Seljuk Sultan. So he has his battle, the Battle of occurred, and he loses, unfortunately. The Byzantine army gets scattered, and Romanus himself, who's leading it in person, he gets cut off at the forefront of the battle, and he's actually captured. That's very humiliating, and he ends up as a, a prisoner in the Sultan's camp. But it was a, a major defeat for the Byzantines. The Byzantines were seriously under threat. They would soon be asking for help from Western Europe to recapture their lost territories. And this was the mission that later became our titular crusade. Anyway... I think we need to ask a few more important questions before we get to that stage. Firstly, how significant a defeat really was the Battle of Manzikert? Well, for a start, it wasn't actually as disastrous as you might think, because the Byzantine army wasn't destroyed, it was merely scattered. The worst thing that happened was that the emperor was captured. It really shouldn't have been a disaster. The problem was that when Romanus is released, he comes back to discover that his leadership has been questioned, as it well might be, given that he'd lost, and that somebody else has been proclaimed emperor in his absence. So a civil war begins, and a series of civil wars begin, which really keep the Byzantines occupied for a large chunk of the 1070s. And during that time, various groups 
realising that imperial control is breaking down, decide to take advantage. Now, it's not just the Muslim Turks. Yes, there's certainly two big bands of Turks, one led by somebody called Danish Mend, another led by a man called Suleiman, but there's also Christians grabbing land, really a kind of free-for-all, taking advantage of the fact that the Byzantines are busy with this civil war. So really, by about 1080, most of Asia Minor has been lost to these various warlords. And in fact, the biggest group, Suleiman's Turks, they've actually taken the town of Nicaea, which is less than 150 kilometres from Constantinople. Displaced citizens from across Asia Minor fled towards Constantinople. And in 1075, this caused massive problems for the city's food supply, as hyperinflation and riots hit the Byzantine Empire. These were significant issues. Yet, when Pope Urban made his speech at the Council of Clermont, he had other ideas in mind for how to motivate Western Europe. Pope Urban, in his speech of 1095, often you know, makes reference to atrocities in Asia Minor, supposedly committed by the Turks. And these one doubts, to be honest with you, because they're only referred to in very polemical kind of context, like crusade calls. The Byzantine chronicles of the time don't mention them. They mention the hyperinflation, they mention the refugees, but they don't mention the Turks kind of torturing people or killing people or anything like that. These stories were likely exaggerated to encourage Western European knights to do their duty and save fellow Christians, who had, up until then, been unable to deal with the threat tormenting their eastern territories. We'll be delving into the perspective of the people who lived in these lands in greater depth later in this series. But, for now, let's check in once again with Jonathan Harris. How did such a prominent empire as the Byzantines shrink so dramatically? It is surprising, isn't it, that the Byzantines lost so much territory um, so quickly. Um, so you ask yourself, well, well, why did they not do anything about it? Why didn't they send an army? Well, they did. They did send one in 1073. Um, but the fact was they were distracted because while the East is being overrun, um, they've got these multiple threats in the West. In the other half of their empire, the Balkans, so that there's two big ones. Um, there are the people called the Pechenegs, who are kind of Turkic people. So they're a major threat to be, to be dealt with. And then, of course, there's the Normans. And these are the people related to the people who invaded England in, in 1066. Basically, the priority had to be to hang on to the Balkans. We're not going to be able to get Asia Minor back uh, at the moment and if, we, if we lose the Balkans. So... Who was the emperor behind the Byzantine call for help? And why were the Byzantines so keen for Western support in Asia Minor now, in the 1090s? After all, they'd lost the territory over 20 years earlier. Well, Alexius Komnenos, he's a, he's a successful general and he seizes power in a coup in the spring of 1081. Um, but there was nothing unusual about that. There'd been a string of coups and people came along and seized power, um, or either failed to seize power, usually generals, um, coming and going. And I think a lot of people will say, well, here's another one. Give him um, a year and he'll be gone. Um, there was no particular reason why he, he should have succeeded while others failed. Um, and actually, the first few years of his reign were a disaster. 
Um, you know, the Pechenegs give him a beating, the Normans give him a beating. Um, at the Battle of Dyrrhachion in October 1081, he only just manages to get away. So it doesn't look good. But what you have to say about Alexius is the guy did have staying power. He did kind of hang on. And gradually, I mean, if you do persevere, um, things might get better. And they did get better. Um, he does defeat the Normans in 1083. And they evacuate and go back to, to southern Italy. And then in 1081, he pulls off a major victory against the Pechenegs at the Battle of Mount Navunion. Credit where credit's due. He did do that. So by the early 1090s, um, we're in a different situation. The Balkans are now safe. So now we can get back to that task we didn't have any time for 20 years ago, i.e. Asia Minor. So that's really what's happening. And that's why things change in the 1090s. This is Alexius thinking, right, let's get Asia Minor back. So what exactly did Alexius want from Western Christendom? We don't know exactly what Alexius said to the Pope, or rather what he said in his letters, which he entrusted to his envoys to take to the Pope. We don't know that exactly. Those letters don't survive. All we know is that some envoys of his turned up in March of 1095 at a council that the Pope was holding in the Italian town of Piacenza. So they come there and we're told that they, they made this appeal for help and said that the Turks have overrun the whole of Asia Minor, right up to the walls of Constantinople, and laid great stress on the fact that Turks were infidels, in inverted commas. So it was couched very much in terms of, look, we're Christians, you're Christians, we're being attacked by non-Christians, you need to help us. So far, so good. But a new element then comes in at some point. At some point, somebody starts talking about Jerusalem. To be clear... Jerusalem had been captured plenty of times beforehand. In fact, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the city, the site where Christians believed Jesus Christ was crucified, buried and resurrected, was actually destroyed early on in the 11th century. And this caused barely a ripple. It was later rebuilt in 1048. But it wasn't until 1095 that all the right pieces were in place and the time was deemed right to recapture the holy city. Now, Jerusalem is something completely different. Asia Minor is Asia Minor. It's a long way from Jerusalem. And now we can understand Alexius asking for help to save Constantinople from the Turks. Of course, that's his capital city. But where does Jerusalem come in? So historians have, have racked their brains about who introduced this. Now, it could have been Pope Urban, who basically gets this appeal from Alexius says, what a good idea, goes to Clermont and says, hey, while we're out there, why don't we just carry on and take Jerusalem? What a, what a great idea. However, there's also a school of thought that thinks, well, maybe Alexius had something to do with it. Because remember, he wants to hold out incentives to get these Western knights to leave the comfort of their own home, come miles and miles and miles and fight people with whom they don't actually have a, an, an enormous quarrel apart from the fact they've got a different religion. So how's he going to do it? Well, he can promise money. OK, you come out here and I'll give you lots of money. I mean, he does. He certainly is promising that. But wouldn't it be nice if you also say, it's something extra. You're coming out and while you're at it, you're going to be doing a good thing for your souls because you're fighting to help Christians against infidels. So you get paid and it helps your soul. But maybe there was a third element he brings in 
because he must have known that in this period, pilgrimage to the Holy Land has really taken off in the West. More and more Western nobles from France, from England, from Germany are making the trip to the Holy Sepulchre to pray at the place where Christ rose from the dead, because if you do that, effectively, it will cancel all your sins, however terrible they are. And let's face it, a lot of these people have done some pretty awful things in their time. An awful lot of killing went on in Western Europe. So it will save you from hell. So it could be that maybe Alexius's envoys made mention of Jerusalem. But it, it can't have been the main goal of the expedition for them, for the Byzantines, that the goal is to get Asia Minor back. So maybe then the Pope took that seed and then he, he lays stress on it. Jerusalem becomes the goal of the expedition. With such a tempting target lined up, it was time to get the message out. There's a number of popular preachers. There's Urban II's preaching campaign. And so this is all bringing influence to bear on some of the elite members of society who are then taking other people along with them. As that process is going on, the message is disseminating, it's changing, it's going across to different people. I mean, we'd love to know a lot more about that preaching process and how it was disseminated to others. Sadly, there is no medieval Twitter in those days <laughs> to see how you know the message morphs and changes as it reaches different social groups. What we can say is that it clearly was popular with a lot of different people within medieval society. So we do get a range of people from the very top to the very bottom of society taking the decision to go on crusade. During his preaching tours, Urban had a specific target in mind. So in terms of who Urban wanted to set out on this campaign, he's relatively clear in one of his letters that he doesn't want young married men to go without the consent of their wives. So that tells us straight away from the get-go that Urban is concerned that wives have a say in this campaign. They can veto whether their husbands go or not in a similar way to pilgrims being able to veto whether their partner can go or not, because this is a vow that affects both of them. You're going to be separated for a given amount of time. So the crusade works in similar ways in that there is that concern that somebody's going to be left behind here. How are we going to make provision for them? As far as we can tell from the main accounts that we have of Clermont, that he didn't want women to go. He wants the lean fighting machine here. He doesn't want elderly or infirm men either. He wants people that are going to be able to contribute militarily. The other provision he gives us is that he doesn't want monks to leave their cloister without the express permission of their abbots. So there are quite a few rules that are laid down in terms of who can go, who shouldn't. We have one charter dated from 1098 of a woman who took the cross publicly, had it on her shoulder, was ready to go, and was persuaded that perhaps she could build or found a house for God to take care of the poor instead. We know that once words got out, this crusade had massive popular appeal. But what was it that motivated so many people to sign up? OK, top three reasons. I think in the first instance, they were possibly motivated by a preacher or a local bishop who told them that this is the thing that they ought to be doing in order to gain God's favour. In the second instance, I think family and family networks. Third reason, people might get paid to go. So they did take paid soldiers with them on the First Crusade. So there is an expectation that if you have a lord, they're going to be looking after you financially and it's part of your job 
as somebody in the military retinue of that lord to go on crusade with them. As a campaign preached by the Pope to support fellow Christians and recapture the holy city of Jerusalem, religious salvation is often put forward as the major motivator that drove people to join crusades. But, as you might suspect, many medieval chronicles were written by churchmen who were generally in favour of crusading as an idea. I asked Natasha what she thought. I think it plays the main role in convincing the important people to go. But once you've got the important people to go, everybody else kind of has to go along with them. (laughs) There was a kind of sense that you shouldn't go on crusade for honour or glory, but you should be doing it for God. However, if you went for God, you would be successful and therefore you would win honour and glory. So they didn't see that necessarily as, as being a bad thing. That was the kind of natural reward. But also we should remember that crusading was very expensive. So they had to raise money before they went and they had to invest in it themselves. They had to borrow money and not all of them were successful or, you know, achieved any great note on crusade. Western Europe had been plagued with famine for quite some time. And with Jerusalem being depicted as a land of milk and honey, rich with wondrous opportunity, it seems likely that this could have been a big draw for potential crusaders. But this expense Natasha mentioned is an important factor when we consider who actually had the opportunity to go on crusade and what they really wanted. It used to be thought that a lot of the crusaders were younger sons who are off freebooting. They're not going to get any land because of the rule that the firstborn son gets everything. Looking at the documents, just how expensive it was for the first crusaders to go on a journey of roughly three and a half thousand kilometres, and that's if you make it back. We're looking at about four times the average wage of a night just to be able to afford to go. So the accounts that we have of what people brought back with them, it tends to be relics, pieces of the true cross, They're not really telling us in great detail about the huge chunk of wealth they brought back with them. There are a lot of accounts of pillaging and looting, but that is more to keep this campaign going than it is about bringing back a wealth of riches. We do get some accounts from men like Caffaro of Genoa, who tell us, oh, we came back rich in peppercorns and we all bought 48 Salidi home with us. It's a long way to go for 48 Salidi. So we can probably say that the freebooting younger sons is on its way out as a theory, but it is one that has persisted for quite some time. After the pitch came the preparations, and planning a campaign this large was no mean feat. So in terms of what they had to get ready, the big PR ceremony of most of the preaching is geared towards that ceremony of taking the cross, so sewing it onto their shoulders so that they're very visual within this society that they are definitely a crusader. They're not just your standard pilgrim. They're something distinct and new. It would have been similar to most aspects of warfare within this society, making sure that you've got all of your arms and your armour, horses that are going to get you a fair chunk of the way. What we have from the written evidence is this idea of setting everything in order before they go. So it is an expensive undertaking. So we do have the church buying up and mortgaging quite large amounts of land so that people actually have the financial backing to afford to go on this campaign. 
With this new type of military campaign, crusaders and their families were facing the unknown. Fulcher of Chart tells us about the parting scenes between husbands and their wives and the women will be weeping copiously, wondering if they're ever going to see their husbands again, while their husbands are stoically, quite monastic-like, quite Christ-like, setting off, leaving everything material behind them and following Christ, quite literally bearing a cross on their own shoulders as well. So there is that gendered trope of what's going on, but it probably reflects the uncertainty. They don't know if they're going to come back or not. Communication isn't set up in the way that letters are going to be going forward and backwards all the time. It's still going to be a long time before people know for certain whether their family member made it, is going to come home. So during all of that time, you've got usually the wives of the Crusaders having to step up and take on the role of regency. And it used to be thought that these were women who hadn't had much to do with ruling government before, that it's that Rosie the Riveter style. They're parachuted into roles that they hadn't held before and they have to learn the ropes very quickly. But looking through the surviving charter evidence, people like Clements of Flanders, for example, there's suddenly a massive upturn in the number of charters and letters that she's generating in the months before Robert goes on the First Crusade. So he's clearly taking the time to make sure that she knows who she can trust. And during the time that she's away, she's minting her own coins with her own name and image. She could have just carried on minting his, but she clearly wants to be seen as a recognised authority. So there's not that perceived gap. There's not a political vacuum going on here. People have stepped up into perhaps more authoritative roles than they had before, but roles that they're well accustomed to, that they've performed before. Most of them are thinking in the short term, as far as we can tell, they want to get to Jerusalem, they want to fulfil their vow at the Holy Sepulchre, and then they're planning on coming back. They've got one eye on making sure that their heirs are in a secure position while they're away, that someone's got an eye on their territory so that it's all still intact when they get back. And if they don't get back, that there's a capable regent there so that their sons will have the same amount of territory that their fathers have ruled over when they come of age. So there's a lot of big concerns for how do you get there? How is that going to work with this supposed military monastery on the move? And what's happening on the home front? Urban was well aware of these challenges. And so to assuage the worries of the Crusaders and avoid any excuses, he put in place the idea of papal protection. It does seem to be a response to a particular concern that particularly when you're asking the landed nobility to give up three years of their lives to go on a lengthy, arduous campaign where it doesn't seem to be much guarantee that they're going to come back rich in anything. We do have men like Beaumont of Taranto, whose motives are mixed, to put it mildly, who probably is out there thinking he's going to get territory in the East and set himself up with a principality. But that's by no means the norm for everybody. People like Stephen of Blois, Robert of Flanders, they're probably expecting that they're going to come back. They want to make sure they've got something to come back to. And the political state of Western Europe at this time is quite fraught in that there are various alliances. People are on different political sides. They are leaving behind enemies as well as a network of allies. So it is a ripe occasion potentially, for another lord to step in and annex some or all of their territory while they're away. 
So the idea of paper protection is essentially removing that disincentive. Urban is essentially saying, okay, I'm aware that you're taking a massive risk, that not everything you own might be intact. So I'm going to take your own person under my protection so that you shouldn't be captured while you're away and extend that over their families so that there is essentially that supposedly watchful eye looking out for the wives and children and the land and possessions of crusaders. Urban, the man behind the crusade, clearly understood his audience and this knowledge proved a vital influence on a movement that would stretch across centuries. Urban has come from probably quite a noble family in the region of Champagne in France. So once he comes into his own as Pope, he knows how the nobility think and act. He knows which buttons to push when he's putting together his appeal for the Council of Clermont. He knows what's likely to motivate these people into taking the cross and joining his crusade campaign. And with that, the First Crusade was underway. But the course of this popular armed pilgrimage would not run smooth. An arduous, dangerous journey lay ahead. Tune in to our next episode when we'll be joining the Crusaders as they take their first steps into the unknown. Many thanks to my experts for today's episode. Professor Jonathan Phillips, Dr Natasha Hodgson, Dr Danielle Park and Professor Jonathan Harris. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're keen to find out more, we'll be releasing a special bonus episode, exclusively for subscribers, where I'll be reflecting on the series with several of our experts and answering your most pressing questions. You can send in your questions by emailing podcast at historyextra.com or you can message us via Facebook, Instagram or X by Monday the 23rd of October. And make sure you're subscribed to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts to access the episode completely ad-free.